This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, the joys of microbial fermentation. Edible alchemists and bacteria join forces. In the little East African nation of Rwanda, the ghosts of hate radio linger in the air. In a crowded Bethlehem neighborhood where Israeli tear gas lingers, there's no safe space for the young or old, and a curious muscle disorder called dystonia. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. England has created a new Ministry of Loneliness. Although George Orwell's Ministry of Truth might come to mind, loneliness is real. In the UK, it's considered especially acute. A recent report found that 9 million Britons suffer from loneliness, almost 15% of the population. British Prime Minister Theresa May considers it a public health issue. Who wouldn't? Michael Tanner from the Libertarian Cato Institute does. Writing for the right-wing National Review Online, Tanner scoffs at the idea that loneliness should be a subject of government concern. Government cannot solve every societal problem, Tanner writes, expecting it to do so as a recipe for disaster. Tanner's arguments are a conservative boilerplate. In his view, hunger, homelessness, health care, and, yes, loneliness can and should be handled at the local level through volunteerism. The obvious rebuttal is that societal problems like loneliness are national in scope and complexity. Loneliness is a public health issue. Volunteerism, too haphazard and unreliable a method to effectively address it. By definition, volunteerism is about choosing which people you want to help, and there's no guarantee that any one human need will attract unpaid, willing workers. Conservatives like to say that volunteers are scared off by government involvement, that if public programs aren't there, volunteers will step in to fill the need. This is just silly. There's room for both public and private efforts. It's not either or. Volunteers are always needed to address immediate needs. Hungry children can't wait for laws and policies to get their daily bread, nor can loneliness. Let's hope Theresa May develops a strategy for dealing with both. Her mania for budget cutting has chopped the legs off many of the very community institutions like public libraries that are needed to battle loneliness. But we can take hope knowing that the UK sees loneliness as a serious problem for governments to grapple with. Others should as well. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. They said a whale swallowed Jonah Out in the deep blue sea Sometimes I get that feeling That same old
time I guess that old feeling Every living creature needs some rest I bleed a whale I sick That's why I have this blue swallowed me. Back in the Middle Ages, alchemists dreamed of turning base metals into gold. These early chemists huddled in damp, cramped, fume-filled labs searching for the universal elixir. In a bright, fragrant Winnipeg kitchen, a much more modern cook is experimenting with fruits, vegetables, and even meat, fermenting them into colorful and healthy foods to eat. Edible Alchemy is the brainchild of Natalie Elizabeth and Alexis Gertz, two Manitoba farm girls with an endless fascination for friendly microbes. Their endless experimentation with natural fermentation has been showcased in workshops and bacteria bars around the world. I spoke with Natalie Elizabeth about the joys of edible alchemy. What is it about fermenting foods, Natalie, that captures your imagination? Um, I, I like to, to talk and think a lot about the concept of bioliteracy, which is just like, you know, people, people having just an understanding about these microorganisms that are active and present around them all the time. And, and I, and I like bringing, you know, I like that there's a lot of these newer scientific resources that can help us understand those relationships. And then there's simultaneously these very long-lived traditions of other ways of knowing and interacting with those organisms. I think that's really cool. I think it fosters people's appreciation for their environments and like a desire to care for them and and protect them and love them as well as like our own body because that microcosm and that mystery also is within our own body within the microbes that are in and on us and that I like to, um, yeah, to just kind of underscore, uh, I guess, a lot of like reverence for those for those complicated and unseen but essential processes, and a little bit of challenge to people to to kind of come out of their comfort zone a little bit to engage with that. <laughs> and there's something very unpredictable, un- unpredictable and kind of ma- magical about getting getting a, fer- a fermentation going you never quite know what you're going to end up with and and 
it involves experimentation. Mm-hmm, for sure. So t- tell me about that. I mean, I'm, w- I'm wondering, another question I have is, what's the difference between store-bought fermented foods? I mean, you can buy sauerkraut in a jar from the store, you can buy yogurt, um, um, they're all pickles, they're all sorts of fermented foods on store shelves. Um, what's the difference between fermented foods that you do yourself and those that you just pick up at the store? Right. I mean, I, I definitely think that there's a sense of empowerment in it. Um, like your, your learning and your knowledge will be deeper when you have a like actual hands-on and sensory connection for a lot of people. Um, you know, the, the cooking process is, is something that would have been passed down from, from people, um, through familial relationships and uh, and I think that that's a really important connecting point for people. I love the connections that people make in our workshop, um, and and I love that idea of like being able to model things and and in that way be able to understand because fermentation just as a concept in and of itself, like a lot of people find it intimidating. What do they find intimidating? Oh, just uh, there's a there's a like germophobia that people think that they're going to do it wrong and that they're going to make themselves sick and uh and some things about fermentation like letting things sit on your counter at room temperature run quite contrary to just general health and safety uh things that people are told uh about cooking it's not like it's not a mainstream like food preservation practice by any means but another aspect that we like about it is you know there's more financial freedom because fermented foods are still like an artisan niche product and for the most part the the affordable things that you'll see on the shelves like a can of sauerkraut have been uh heat processed they're not living they're not raw they do not have the same nutritional benefits but they carry the same name so that's confusing to people and they might be going to the store seeking out something that's going to like help their digestion and they get a, a tin of sauerkraut and that's not super helpful to their digestion. Um, so then they would have to choose kind of the more artisan fresh products. Those can be prohibitively expensive to people and as well, they're likely not going to be local. So we, in my other um in my other like roles, uh, I am a landscaper and a gardening coach, and so I work with people all the time, um, growing food and uh, and har- like harvesting lots of different things. So I think it's also a really great way to preserve things that you're able to grow here or that farmers are able to grow here for the winter to to be part of like a local food economy and to put up things that are perhaps like things you wouldn't otherwise eat or like scraps that are hard to process in other ways. You don't have to like spend a whole day setting up your kitchen and canning in order to, to ferment something. Like you can actually just clean things up and put them in a jar and put salt water on it and be done. And it's a way more energy efficient process for for food preservation so I like to tell people like it's a skill to have in your in your basket of food skills that's going to make you more 
um, food secure. And it's much more hands-on. I mean, everything everything that you've been telling me about conveys this idea of people actually engaging in in the food that the that not only that they're eating, but they're gonna eat. That they're preparing it. They're. I mean, this is the whole essence of what makes cooking so much fun: pulling together all the raw materials and thinking up of a recipe, and then spending time preparing it. It's uh, it's even therapeutic versus going into the store and just buying something. So actually fermenting, you know, preparing your foods and fermenting them, it takes the step, moves it even further back in time. It takes time. You have to, you can get to watch it ferment on your counter. So it's much more hands-on and participatory. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, like it's just for so many people, they come to our workshops and they, you know, they want um, the healing of fermented foods, but they might not have financial access. And that's something that like is, I think, very relevant and important to me that um, oftentimes when traditional foods or traditional methods or skills or whatever, um, you know, there there's this like modernization kind of dichotomy where like there will be people who've been like left behind by modernization who like hold on to these skills. And then the people who've like gone on the other end of the spectrum that are like so modern that it's the new artisan thing and they are spending tons of money on it. And, uh, and I just think like, yeah, I want, I want to normalize it a little bit and I want it to remain something that is accessible to people, even if they don't have tons of money to buy like the newest artisan food product. Um, like for example, I have, a one of the things that I made this year was um, I I took a bunch of apple scraps uh, that were left over from processing and I made vinegar and then I um, was working in somebody's garden and they had like sage that we were growing and so I dried the sage and then I kept the stems and I've been infusing them into my vinegar or like um, I'll go and pick like edible weeds and they're not delicious to eat on their own, but you can like mix them into your sauerkraut and kind of bulk it up and get additional nutrition from that. Um, so I just, yeah, I really like the way that it also, um, like intercepts with waste streams or it can. Can you tell me about your favorite recipe, Natalie, or... Tell me about your favorite recipe or something that's you think really fabulous that's now fermenting on your kitchen counter. Okay. Um, the Probably my favorite thing, at least right now, is um, I have started making a soda for the past few years. So it's a wild, a wild carbonation, a wild fermentation. And in the springtime, I go and pick spruce tips from spruce trees. My mom has one in her yard and I put them in honey and the spruce tips release the water that they have in them and it ferments in the honey. And then in the, well, really any time, but usually for me, it's in like the fall winter time. After that's been sitting for a few months, I add juniper berries and a little bit more water to it and I put it in jars and I let it carbonate. And it makes, like, the yeasts that are present on the juniper berries and the um, fermentation from the spruce tips and the honey 
all just makes this really nice, like, foresty beverage. I'm a big fan of that. I call it boreal soda. I hear something being mixed in the background there. Yeah, I have it beside me, so I just shook it up. That's hilarious. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I have, I have a few, um, bottles that I've put together for a workshop that I'm doing at the conservatory on the 8th. What do people need to get to know to get started and what, what do they need in the way of equipment or materials and how do they need to prepare? Somebody wants to launch into edible alchemy. (laughs) Um, so one of our biggest inspirations is a man named Sandor Katz. And he um, also is just like very much of the DIY ethos. And what he would say is like, you use what you have available to you. Like you go in the recycling and find a glass jar and make sure it's clean. You can start with that. Um, there, are, there are plenty of fancy tools out there. And I think that there are good applications for them. I think if people are trying to make themselves like high quality medicine, then having things like airlocks is to their advantage because you have more control. But if the main thing is just to, to ferment foods, then, then just basic glass jars are all you need. Really. Um, if you're doing a vegetable ferment, you'll need the vegetables and some salt. That's about it. <laughs> and that's it. But I mean, do they need to sterilize the, everything before they get going? No, you don't. Um, so as long as things are clean is really the only thing. Um, and I always tell people, like, the more control you have over that process, the better. Uh, so because a lot of times if people will get, like, you know, a gross, like, growth like yeast growth in their in their sauerkraut I'll say like you know was was your container totally clean so if people want to they can sometimes I'll wash things in really hot water to make sure that they're clean but that's it you don't you don't need to sterilize things like if you're using a a like wine brewing kit or anything like that and you can really default to the fact that like people have been doing this for thousands of years in quite a range of conditions. Sometimes people had access to pottery or, um, you know, wouldn't have access to sterilization equipment for sure. So um, it's proven itself to be, to be safe and appropriate for such a wide range of conditions. What are the health advantages of eating fermented foods? Well, uh, a simple Google search will tell you that there's quite a lot. And I think that there is no such thing as a magic bullet um, in terms of like people's health. But uh, but fermented foods, like they've been pretty life changing for me as somebody who's had a lot of digestive issues because it basically just makes your food more digestible to you, more like bioavailable to you. So Uh, A classic example of this is like in sauerkraut, when you make sauerkraut, you vastly increase the presence of vitamin C in that uh, food product. So, so like, as opposed to if you were to 
um, can it or freeze it, you would lose a lot of those things. But in fermented foods that actually like vitamin C, a lot of minerals, um, sometimes B vitamins, they become more bioavailable and perhaps even increase while they're fermenting. And then when you ingest them, you also have the added benefit of microorganisms that if you maintain a good environment for them in your in your digestive tract, then they will stay and continue to help you digest things over time. So like I mentioned with the spruce tip and uh, juniper drink, like there's a lot of um, like natural medicine components to that and you wouldn't necessarily maybe want to just like eat a juniper berry, but if you put it into your food, it's like it can be a really pleasing flavor. Where can people get more information about edible alchemy? What what are your your recommended resources for people who want to learn more and get into it? Right. So we've got ediblealchemy.co. That's our website and our Instagram handle. Um, and in terms of like other favorite resources, we share sometimes on our on our pages what like some things that are inspiring us, but a main one that I always come back to is Sandor Katz's website, um, wildfermentation.com. I think that his Art of Fermentation book is just one of the most valuable resources that a person could have. And that's, that's usually where I recommend that people start their reading if they want to invest in a cookbook. Um, yeah. We also sell some little books that we've made on our website if people want to try those out too. Natalie, Elizabeth, thanks again for joining us on the Green Blue Show. You're very welcome. Have a nice day. Natalie, Elizabeth, and Alexis Gertz are the co-founders of Edible Alchemy. Read more about their probiotic bacteria bars and other such tasty stuff at ediblealchemy.co. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg.
from an album called Elephant Songs and Cow Cow Blues. That's gospel tune. Steve Mann. The 24th anniversary of Rwanda's 100-day genocide will soon be upon us. From April to July 1994, almost a million ethnic Tutsis and their Hutu friends were slaughtered by marauding gangs of Hutu extremists while the international community stood around, wringing its hands. Among the sharpest tools in the hands of the genocidaire, hate radio. Here's a story about that. The Tutsi were collaborators for the Belgian colonists. They stole our Hutu land. They are cockroaches. They are murderers. They are a minority of traitors and invaders. We will squash their infestation. This is RTLM. Hutu Power Radio. Today, many generals in Rwanda seem to be haunted by the spirit of LTRM. If you just go on the microphone, you are always very cautious. What am I saying? Won't people misinterpret what I'm saying? And that is the spirit of LTRM that is haunting today's Rwandan journalists, especially radio journalists. So today we are using the same instrument to heal the wounds that this radio station participated in uh, inflicting on our people. Mm. Good evening, everybody. This is Double D, and you're back here with Domino in the studio on this beautiful Saturday evening. This female has decided to select some of the best tracks in town for you to take you on this Saturday night. I'm going to play you a track, reggae artist. They're called Inner Circle, and the song is called Girl, I Want to Make You Sweat. Let's hope this is what the music will do to you tonight. Otherwise, stay tuned and we'll be... Okay, my name is Sylvia Gasana. I'm 23 years old. Um, what got me into radio? I was looking for employment. And uh, all these new private radio stations were coming up in Rwanda. And somebody said to me, you know, you're bilingual. Why don't you give it a shot? Anything you're going to use to promote anything, first of all, you've got to make it appealing to the public something attractive to them, something that they want to listen to. At our station, we try to not talk too much about the genocide. Where are we going, Clément? Where are we going? We are going to Mirenje, the district of Mirenje, Chibunga province. We are visiting uh, some members of listeners' clubs working with the Radio Izuba. They work as uh, local reporters. It's a very important aspect in um, having the community radio. These are people, part of the communities, so they trust them more uh, than anyone else who would come with tape recorders. So it's very easy to give them news, even their top secrets. So do these folks listen to Radio Izuba? Yeah, we can ask them. Ah, they like it because uh, it belongs to them. They uh, it's uh, radio proximity. They also like Msekiway. It's a a program about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. There's one guy called Rutagani, he was a, 
a leader whereby he was uh, mobilizing uh, the citizens to go and kill their neighbors. Now he's saying that it's not good to, to mobilize people to kill their neighbors. And he heard that on this on this program? It's like a habit now. People don't talk. They don't testify on what their role in genocide. But when the radio gets there, they say, okay, Today I'm going to talk just because the radio is here. I know I can't be victimized. So both sides were like, they were happy about the presence of the radio. Uh, where we are now, just a few meters away, there is a site where there is buried 500 people that were perished in 1994 genocide. So the role of Radio Zuba is to broadcast the testimonies of the survivors in order to know that genocide happened and it will never happen again. They are cockroaches. They are murderers. We will squash the infestation. This is RTLM Hutu Power Radio. When you just read the history of Rwanda, it was quite distorted, and that is why genocide occurred in this country. So when you put the history of Rwanda in its proper context, you are trying to bridge that gap between the Hutus and Tutsis. In reality, they had no great differences, and so there was no need of conflict and fighting that ended up in genocide. I like that idea that well, you can call me and tell me what you're thinking and then we can have a national debate about it and while we're having that debate everyone else can listen in and there's a sort of something that connects us all through radio this is rtlm hutu power radio stay alert watch your neighbors <laughs> Learn more about the 100-day Rwandan genocide at greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's a classic American call for racial harmony written by R&B giant Curtis Mayfield, performed by R&B giant Alexis Corner. Everybody's talking this country's state We're giving you power Every hour Just about with every Christian faith We're killing off All our leaders It don't matter none black or white We all know It's wrong But we're gonna fight To make it right Mighty, mighty Don't want no best 
Alexis Corner and his New Church and Friends Ensemble performing the Curtis Mayfield classic Mighty Mighty Spade and Whitey back in 1969. Ida and Daisha are a pair of refugee camps in Bethlehem in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, home to some 21,000 Palestinians, they are among the most crowded urban neighborhoods in the world. Israeli security forces commonly enter both camps day and night, detaining children and youth and firing off endless rounds of tear gas. According to a recent study by a pair of American researchers, the health consequences of chronic tear gas exposure in Ida and Daesha are extensive. I spoke to one of the authors of the report, Dr. Rohini Har. Tell me about the tear gas that Israeli security forces use. It's not, I gather, your old-fashioned typical form of tear gas. I wish I could tell you more about it, but unfortunately there's zero transparency on what they're using. What we know is that the majority of it is fired from like a tank kind of things, like in 90 or 100 groups of small canisters. So this isn't just, you know, one grenade that's going off once in a while. It's more like a little machine gun full of tear gas. One thing um, that we don't know is the exact chemical makeup. A lot of people are concerned that they're using a newer form of tear gas. We know that newer forms of tear gas, which is CS or CN gas, exist that they last longer in the air, that they're more um, they're um, more repellent to water so that you can't wash them off as easily. But I have no idea what the Israelis are using, which is another problem, because then there's more fear and paranoia around what's going on. And your report indicates that they may be siliconized, whatever that means. Yeah, so that's CS1, CS2 gas are kind of newer forms of, of tear gas that are kind of the the small like little powder is covered in silicone so that it doesn't wash off with water as well. So what are the medical effects that you've documented? What sort of physical effects do people complain of? So, I mean, I obviously it's called tear gas for a reason. It causes tearing, but not just tearing, but uh, what we call blepharospasm, which is that you, you uncontrollably like cannot open your eyes or it burns your eyes a lot when you try to open them. And that's very disorienting because, you know, you can't, you're, the whole point of tear gas is to like basically dispel crowds and make the area safe. 
But if you can't see anything, then it's really, really hard to run away and get away from it. Um, we also know classically that tear gas causes trouble breathing and uh, skin problems. Those are the, like, burning of the skin. Those are the three main things that you expect tear gas to do. But you only expect them to last for a very short amount of time, 15, 20, 30 minutes. What we found there is that those symptoms are lasting much longer than we expected, um, sometimes a day, sometimes actually um, even longer. And that because people are exposed to tear gas over multiple days for weeks and weeks on end, that they're having more chronic symptoms as well, headaches, allergic reactions, and really every part of their body is being affected by it. And this isn't just like healthy you know, 18-year-old, this is like two-month-old babies, pregnant women, 85-year-old, you know, retirees, um, people with asthma and people with diabetes and other medical problems. And so we're seeing a whole range of medical issues in them. And then the last thing I'll mention is that um, a lot of people complain that it's not just at the time that the tear gas is, is around, it's because they feel like this powder is lasting in the air. So when it hits inside their house or on the street, every time it's kicked up or that powder kind of gets um, re-aerosolized, that it causes symptoms again for three, four days afterwards as well. And w women complain about miscarriages. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, something that's really hard to prove, and we don't try to prove anything like that. But a lot of people attribute miscarriages to their tear gas exposure. And it's, it's interesting uh, that these events of the security forces going into the camps, and it's a daily routine, and it's not, as you say, directly correlated to political tension or non-violent or violent protests or stone-throwing Israeli troops just go in and, and do it without any provocation. That's generally what people are reporting, that these are not provoked incidents where they're, you know, typically you're supposed to only use tear gas when you're protecting public safety, but that's not at all what we hear reports of. What are the mental health effects and... Um, sort of emotional effects, mental health effects and consequences of, of this exposure to tear gas? Sure. My, my uh, colleague Jess Gunham at UCSF focused on the mental health effects there because they're quite profound. And I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I will summarize and tell you that um, they are pretty profound in terms of this. Uh, what he really focuses on is a sense of helplessness. So people normalize what's going on because they're doing dealing with it every day from, you know, childhood onwards. And at the same time, you know, there's this constant sense of, of they're feeling helpless, like there's nothing they can do about it. They can't, you know, there's no one they can go to. This is not a government that they elected. It's an occupying power. So they feel like there's nothing, no one they, they, that can protect them from it. And at the same time, there's nothing they can do to prevent it. Um, and then especially when parents see their children and their mothers and grandmothers and things exposed, they feel especially helpless because they can't protect their children from this kind of um, exposure at all. Interesting uh, a quote from your report that some non-United non Nations hospitals indicated that they've 
not kept records uh, of these kinds of events since experiencing raids um, to search for persons and records, that the hospitals intentionally don't keep records of treating people who've been exposed to tear gas precisely because is, is the security forces come in and confiscate the records. So, I mean, I cannot speak enough about this. The majority of my research is on medical neutrality, especially in conflict. And let me just say that this is so deeply concerning that um, that medical professionals do not feel safe documenting what they what they find in their medical records, because not only is that a violation of basic general neutrality, um, it's also really dangerous for patients because there's no record of them being there. And so when they come back, when they have chronic problems, there's nobody has any idea what's going on with them. Can you tell me anything, Rohini, about the legal status of the use of chemical irritants of this sort in, in environments such as these, these camps in Palestine? Yeah, so, so the 1992 um, UN Convention Against Chemical Weapons banned the use of all chemical weapons, including tear gas, in conflict zones. Tear gas... Um, and other crowd control weapons are permitted for public safety for civilian police to police their own communities, right? So, for instance, the United States is allowed to use it when there is a dangerous protest. We often use it, frankly, in the U.S. when there's not a dangerous protest. In Canada, you know, there was probably excessive use of it during um, the Native American protests in Toronto, but it was still a legal use. The concern here is that that in is in Palestine, this is not community policing. This is an occupying power. And so really, technically, you're probably um, violating humanitarian law because this is still like an active and ongoing conflict. Admittedly, it's been dragged out and very long, but the use of tear gas, it's not entirely clear that that's even legal in this situation. And it is, an, in a sense, a form of collective punishment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way it's being used from our reports is that, like, it's not like people are being dispelled when they're rioting or damaging buildings or harming public safety or blocking roads. This is just going into people's homes. You know, like, they're just cooking dinner or it's 2 a.m. and someone nearby is getting arrested and they just, it's all over their house and they can't get out of it, they can't get into it. I mean... And, you know, we're talking about small apartment buildings, but this is a really, really poor area. So people don't have good ventilation and they don't have good windows that shut and close. Everybody's windows and doors are cracked. And so, you know, they're not able to protect themselves against it. We've been talking about tear, the use of tear gas, but how about the use of skunk? So skunk was not when i was there we uh, initial did the initial research in august and skunk had not been used for you know at least 2017 but since the united states um made the announcement about moving the i guess moving the embassy to jerusalem there's been a bit more protest and then uh reports and uh, news media show that skunk has been used again now you're going to ask me what skunk is. <laughs> well, I know, I know what skunk is. I've run hard to avoid it. Yes, which you should because it's disgusting. Uh, but, but for those listeners who don't know what skunk is, can you tell us? Yeah, so basically skunk spray is um, 
is only used in the occupied territories by Israel. Anywhere else in the world, I've never seen it used. It's never been reported to be used. Basically, it's this like, um, they call it, they say it's organic, but it's like this yeasty, terrible, foul-smelling spray. So um, instead of a water cannon just spraying water, it sprays this terrible, foul-smelling spray that can last weeks and weeks until it rains or until it gets washed away or something. It covers houses, it covers businesses, it covers everything on the street and the neighborhood. It makes it so you can't even live there. And so uh, this is a classic form of collective punishment, and not only, you know, in the acute, but over days and weeks. So people have to close down businesses because when the stuff is sprayed, no one can be there. And I gather, I've heard reports that exposure to skunk actually causes, not surprisingly, skin irritation uh, nausea, vomiting, yeah, just stomach irritation. It sounds like it's just disgusting stuff. What are your recommendations? What are, what are the recommendations of the uh, of the Human Rights Center uh, in in, in um, follow up to this this report? What are you recommending happen? I mean, the main the main the only ones who can make this the tear gas frequency and quantity stop is the Israeli Defense Forces and and the Israeli government. So the main recommendation is that it needs to stop and it needs to be looked at closer. That this cannot go on without impunity for any longer. And so most of those recommendations focused on that. On the other hand. We also do make res- re- recommendations to Anurwa that they have, you know, they have a duty to protect Palestinians and so uh, refugees. And so we strongly advise them to try to do other um, methods that would mitigate some of the harm, like help sanitation workers and have them have gloves, have teachers have safe spaces or maybe more education and things like that. But again, those are all harm mitigation strategies. The real issue is that it's just too much tear gas. And tear gas is in the air. It's aerosolized. It's hard to get away from. It there just needs to be less less of it. Is this tear gas manufactured inside Israel, or does Israel import it from some from some other friendly country like the United States? We, you know, I think both, but it's not entirely clear. It's really hard to show where things are formed because the trade and manufacture of tear gas. There's very few regulations around it internationally. So really, the, the use of tear gas in these kinds of contexts violates international law. I think so. And there's also very little accountability for any of its use, um, very little control and very little oversight. Rohini Har, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add, something that I haven't asked? Uh, you've been very helpful. I guess uh, the only thing I would say is that, you know, I... It's really easy for me to talk about research and evidence and data, but I think the most um, touching thing about going there and being in Ida and in Dahesha camp was really talking to the people there, uh, you know, and just, I remember one girl I interviewed in a focus group, uh, like a, two sisters, and the, the older girl was like, it's scary, I don't like it, it's normal, but it's scary, and the littler girl must have been only the same age as my daughter, like five or six, was like, I'm not scared, I want to fight it. And it just shows you the kind of um, the kind of tension that goes along with this. And especially when you hear children talking about, 
you know, frequent exposure to tear gas and the kind of violence and tension they're exposed to day to day, it's really heartbreaking. And I think that's really why I do this work and why we need to think about what's going on there. It's not, you know, these are kids. <laughs> Rohini Hara, thank you very much for joining us on the Green Blue Show. Oh, you're very welcome. Rohini Har is an emergency physician with expertise in human rights. She is a member of the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. No Safe Space, Health Consequences of Tear Gas Exposure Among Palestinian Refugees was released this past January by the Human Rights Center of the University of California at Berkeley's School of Law. You can find a link at our website, greenplanetmonitor.net. Now when I got to Washington, you know I was feeling all right. And when I left, I was feeling bad, bad, mm, and it's sad. It's a blind man messed up in a Mm, ah, when I heard a racket and I went on the outside, I got ticket all in my eyes now. That's bad, and it's sad. It's a blind man Messed up in a ticket Now, they carried me down to the doctor And the doctor said it was all right He said, I just run that red light Well, it fades It's a blind man Messed up in a Some good advice 
He said, it's so good to see all the men and women. They all out waking by their own pride. Now nah, that's pain. Mm, and it's saying, it's a blind man messed up in a Cooter performing live at Ebbets Field in Denver, Colorado in 1974, a sleepy John Estes tune called Blind Man Messed Up by Tear Gas. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. In the realm of medical nuisances, mysterious muscle spasms are almost as distressful as tear gas, especially if you earn your living playing guitar. Here's a story about that. I have this thing where I play guitar every day. In a crowded Tim Hortons in Ajax, Ontario, professional guitarist Jamie Shear describes how his bout of dystonia began. Picked up the guitar, couldn't hold the pick the way I wanted to. So I went to see a doctor. Hello, Dr. Chen. How are we doing? Nice to see you. Jamie Shearer's doctor is Robert Chen, a dystonia specialist at Toronto Western Hospital. Chen diagnosed Jamie with focal dystonia, a type of involuntary contraction involving just one or a few muscles. Up to 20% of working musicians suffer from it at some point. So do writers, athletes, craftspeople, an estimated 300,000 North Americans. The underlying problem? normal brain plasticity, gone rogue. So say someone would keep practicing a musical instrument, you want to induce a good type of plasticity to learn how to play, you know, maybe a very difficult sequence. But in some cases, this can go wrong and lead to a unfavorable or abnormal type of motor program. Muscle function is initiated by the motor cortex straddling the top of your brain. Towards the bottom, the basal ganglia make motion smooth. Right behind, the cerebellum acts as an autopilot, monitoring your body position on the fly, calculating how best to move when the motor cortex says, go. Traditionally, we think that dystonia is mainly a disturbance of the basal ganglia. Patient with a stroke in the basal ganglia will often develop dystonia. But in the last, I would say, five to ten years, there's a lot more evidence that the cerebellum is also involved. Okay, so this is one setup that you can use for uh, brain slices. Philippe Isop studies the cerebellum in his lab in Strasbourg, France. Isop sticks tiny electrodes into the Purkinje cells that form electrical circuits. And then we can play around with the whole microcircuit. Because in the brain slices, you would find a complete network. Neuronal circuits are like a highway system that constantly monitors and adjusts itself plastically. Imagine that you have a big mesh of highway. If the action is okay, there is a mechanism that will say, that was a good road communication point between two cells, between two neurons, will be strengthened by, by the fact that the action is well done. Sometimes, networks get tangled up in blue and muscles stiffen. Jamie shears his fingers lifting away from his guitar pick, for example, or a person with torticollis, excruciating neck spasm. Dystonia also affects the eyes, eyelids, mouth, tongue, and rectum. This problem is a communication breakdown a bad calculation in a relatively normal network. 
the solution? Stop the rogue neural loop. Restore the good one. Your brain is plastic. You can do it. So basically what you do is to provoke new plasticity in the network and then the, the network can learn again the correct pattern in a, in a sense. The only time I use my finger. I'm okay with that because I'm using the index finger and the thumb. Back at his home in Ajax, Jamie Shear demonstrates neural plasticity in action. Jamie's dystonia has not gone away. Researchers are studying ways to help brain circuits get over their hiccups. I have gone and volunteered for different areas of um, experimentation where they've created headaches for me, but enough for them to do research and give me free Botox at the same time. So. Botox injections weaken the tiny muscles that make Jamie's digits lift from his pick. His cerebellum should respond by backing off these muscles, assigning others in their place. The same approach may work for the tens of thousands of other Canadians with focal dystonia. That's not all. Having learned how to replace hiccuping neural circuits in people with dystonia, the next step will be to restore motor function in stroke patients, for example, where some circuits have died, but others can be recruited, or getting Parkinson's patients to sing in choirs, thereby restoring facial expression. How best to promote brain plasticity in different clinical situations is the big question. Research goes on. I'm Dave Kattenberg. That's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.